Hello and welcome back. My name is Luke and you're listening to another episode of the Next Stage podcast by Web Summit, taking you inside the minds of business and cultural leaders from around the world. It's Wednesday, and every Wednesday we're looking at some of the best and brightest minds that Web Summit has to offer. So sit back, relax, and listen in as we hear from the leading minds and industry giants from all over the planet. My name is Laura Riley, and I have the, the unique opportunity today to talk to Pat Brown. Um, I have read many, many interviews with him, and he is not a shrinking violet, so I would love to just get right into it and talk a little bit about Impossible Foods. So, Dr. Brown, I think for those handful of us who have been living under a rock for the past year, um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the company that you started and, and kind of what your initial mission was and maybe how it's evolving. Sure. Um, so uh, the company has been around since uh, 2011. Um, the idea for it started maybe a year before that. I was a professor at Stanford at the time. I had no interest in the food business. I had no interest in going into the business world whatsoever. And, uh, um, but at the time, I had a sabbatical and I was trying to uh, figure out what, what I could do that would have the biggest positive impact on the world, given, you know, given the stuff that, that I'm capable of doing. And um, I very quickly realized that, first of all, it was going to be something about dealing with the big environmental crises that, that we're facing right now. There, there are two kind of, uh, um, each of them arguably the biggest environmental threats that humanity has ever faced. One is, um, you know, the rapidly progressing uh, climate change, and the second is a catastrophic collapse in global biodiversity. And um, as I started educating myself about, um, you know, what, what potential tools I could use to solve those problems, I realized that um, by far the biggest uh, factor in both of them is the use of animals as a food technology globally. Nothing comes close to um, that technology. It's by far the most destructive technology in human history. Challenge me on that if you want. Um, and, um, and so the other thing that was critical to recognize is that we're not going to, so we got to get rid of that technology. This is it's much more important than replacing fossil fuels in terms of the benefits for the world. And challenge me on that. I'll be happy to explain why. But, um, but the other thing is that uh, recognizing that uh, people who are supporting the industry, the consumers of meat, fish, and dairy foods, uh, are not going to be talked out of uh, liking those foods. In fact, you could talk to most of the world's environmentalists who, who understand this problem completely. They know how, how destructive this industry is, and yet they're all eating steak for dinner. So. Um, it's just too hard to get people to, to, to change such basic habits as their food preferences. So that's not the solution. And government regulation isn't going to be the solution because there's, the, you know, you, you, you can't even get the governments of the world to agree to these feeble commitments they made at, at Paris to, to sign on to progressive climate change. Uh, they're certainly not going to uh, um, intervene with with food preferences. Okay, that means the solution is, has to be completely different. And it is to recognize that the problem isn't that people love meat, it's that we're using the wrong technology to produce it. That we use animals as a technology for transforming plants into meat, fish, and dairy foods. They're terrible at it, okay? They didn't evolve to be meat machines. They're incredibly inefficient, and that's, that's fundamentally why it's so environmentally destructive. But when you frame it that way, actually, oh, okay, that's that's a very tractable problem. Um, it's in the class of problems that I've worked. You know, I was a biomedical researcher. Fundamentally, you're talking about foods whose whose desirability to consumers is an emergent property of their kind of molecular makeup, 
and um, and I believe that if we could um, just deeply understand what are the molecular mechanisms that underlie those things that consumers value, uh, um, that it should be possible not only to make fo make foods that that uh, um, deliver everything that that those products can deliver, but actually do much better. Because again, the cow did not evolve to be a meat machine. It's not good at it. Um, it hasn't. It's fundamentally unimprovable. Um, and once we take control of all the knobs, we can make something that's better than the cow can ever do. And that was my thesis, anyway. So, um, so at that point, I realized, okay, I, you know, the the solution here is to make the most delicious meat, fish, and dairy foods in the world, make them vastly more sustainably from plants, complete, compete in the marketplace. Forget about regulation. Just let consumers uh, um, call the winner, and I believe that it would succeed. So I founded uh, Impossible Foods. Our mission is to completely replace the use of animals of food technology by 2035. We're dead serious about it. We totally believe it's doable. And um, and uh, we've been working on that ever since. And we, we treated it from the get-go as the most important scientific problem in the world is understanding in molecular terms what makes meat delicious um, and then figuring out how to get um, precisely the right ingredients from sustainable plant sources to enable us to um, outperform those products in delivering the delicious experience that people care about. Um, and we've made tremendous progress since then. We have a, a, you know, we launched our first product about four years ago. Uh, it's been super successful. Um, uh, you know, we're growing very fast as, as a business. We have a bunch of new products uh, in the R&D pipeline. Um, I was confident that we would succeed when I launched this company, and now I'm completely confident. There's absolute, it's, it's, you know, it's game over for the incumbent industry. They just don't realize it yet. So since I, the I, I just I would love to ask because since the beginning you've really not equivocated on that that kind of mission of, of by 202035 and um, I want I want to know a is that is that target still viable given what what you've learned since because I think one criticism that's been that, that has been you know meted out for for you and competitors is that going after I know it's a kind of a worst first approach to, to go after ground, meat, whether that's ground beef or ground pork, um, to go after those first, but that in a lot of ways, whole muscle is what you, for beef, let's say specifically for beef, whole muscle is what you have to attack next, because that's the driver in terms of how many cows, that the ground beef is essentially what can't be sold as, as whole muscle, right? So I, I'm wondering, um, I'm assuming the, the biggest impediments are some kind of scaffolding, or, or how, I guess, how close are you to a uh, attacking that kind of whole muscle problem or, or arriving well, at a product that you're Oh, no, no, with. we're working on it right now. In fact, we've, we've been uh, working on it to some extent uh, um, from almost the very beginning. We, um, uh, a few years ago when we decided that our first product would be raw ground beef, um, and let me just make a point that I think was, uh, wasn't clear from what you said. More than half of all the beef sold in the U.S. is uh, sold as ground beef. And uh, if that market goes away, it's, a, it's an economic disaster for the uh, beef industry. So, um, uh, and again, you know, like, uh, um, the goal here is to create an economic disaster for that industry. Um, and uh, so, but yeah, steak is really important. Uh, we have a very active uh, project right now working on uh, steak. 
Um, it's um, going very well. I have complete confidence that we're going to have an uh, awesome product. And, um, but, you know, that's just me saying it, so stay tuned, and, and you know, consumers will get to decide uh, whether, it, whether it's awesome enough for them. In terms of the pandemic, and I'm sure you've been asked this a ton, um, I felt like that the last year, it really was the year of plant-based meat. And, you know, at least the media was all agog at this new innovation. Um, and there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, commercial success. And you chose to launch in restaurants as, and I, I'm interested in hearing why you chose food service as a way to debut products. Um, and what effect did the pandemic have on that as, as food service kind of was reduced to essentially takeout and delivery, which is very burger friendly and burger centric really. Um, but I'm wondering if in some ways the pandemic may have made um, the urgency of your mission in some ways more palpable and in other ways further away. Because I know there are a lot of studies that say people's um, focus on sustainability might have kind of taken a back seat in the past six months. And I, I wonder how you kind of, um, what, your, what your arithmetic is on, on kind of what the pandemic has done to uh, enthusiasm for plant-based meat. Okay, well, there's a lot of questions embedded in there. Um, but uh, um, first of all, I think the, the, the pandemic was, was horrible for, um, you know, the entire world and, and uh, obviously very disruptive to the restaurant industry. And of course, that had some impact on, on you know, our short-term approach uh, to our business. But I think uh, just, a, just an important point is um, it, it's, we're over the next 15 years or over the course of getting to our goal, um, there are going to be many such disruptions, okay? You know, global crises, pandemics, whatever. Um, and, and they will have their short-term impact. Um, but it's not going to fundamentally change our course. And you were making the point that, well, people uh, are less focused on sustainability now because they're, they're just focused on, you know, getting through the pandemic. Uh, and that makes perfect sense. But um, uh, um, if we had to depend on people, people's commitment to sustainability for our success, we might as well just give up now. Because um, uh, you know the whole reason that we took the approach we did is that we're depending on making a product that consumers who don't care, who don't even know such a thing exists as climate change and have never, totally unaware of the biodiversity collapse and all the things that we care about, um, will choose just because of deliciousness, nutritional value, affordability, convenience. It has to be. It has to deliver con for consumers based on those fundamental things that they care about, and sustainability is just a bonus. Um, uh, so there's that. You asked why, why did we uh, launch in restaurants? Well, um, basically, at the time when we were just you know, starting to do pilot-scale production of our product and so forth, we were um, uh, kind of testing it, getting feedback from chefs. Um, and um, I guess one of them is uh, uh, Tracy Desjardins, who's going to uh, show up later. But um, uh, and what we found is that these chefs that are hardcore, like meat icons, like literally people have written books all about meat, okay, or have you know their whole sign is like chunks of meat and stuff like that. that tattoos, lots of meat tattoos. You you you, you nailed it. So. <laughs> 
they loved they 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 loved our um, product, the Impossible Burger, and um, and wanted to serve it to their consumers as meat. I mean, the thing that 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 uh, uh, something the reason I think it was so crazy with chefs is that um, there is no other product, um, plant-based product, whether it's broccoli or any other plant-based product on the market. Um, that behaves like meat when you cook it. Plant, uh, meat does something magical when you cook it. And this is like why chefs feel like they have so many degrees of freedom when they're cooking with meat, is that it is a live chemical system. When you cook meat, it, tr it doesn't just turn brown and, and you know, get tougher or whatever. It, pr it completely changes its flavor and aroma profile and it produces this explosion of flavor and aroma by chemistry that takes place in the meat. And that was something they were seeing. And it was like, whoa, that's kind of like magical. And chefs love to try new things and so forth. So we had all these chefs that wanted to serve our product. And, and the critical thing that we needed to get across to consumers is this is not like anything ha that has ever existed on Earth before that's been made from plants. So forget about all your preconceived notions that no plant-based product can deliver what a meat lover cares about. And what better way of delivering that message than having these hardcore meat guys whose livelihood and reputation depends on serving delicious meat to their consumers, putting our product on their menu. So that's, that, was, that was one thing why, of course, we're going to choose that option. Secondly, I think in general, um, it, f food service is a much better uh, vehicle to showcase a new product and to uh, uh, enable people to try it. If you launch in retail, it doesn't matter how much noise you make about it, it's one of 50,000 products in the grocery store that people are just going to sleepwalk through and probably never notice it for decades. And, uh, but if you go to a restaurant, you get a highly curated selection, um, and you have people who can tell you about it, you know, who are advocates on site. Again, the, the fact that someone chose to put it on the menu is an incredibly powerful advocacy. So to us, it was kind of a no-brainer that we're going to launch in food service. And, um, uh, but that's not where we're going to stay forever, but it was just, you know. And even when we go into new markets internationally now, that's always our strategy. We launch with world-class chefs, like Michelin star chefs in Hong Kong and Singapore and so forth. We don't pay them to do it either. It's just we demo our product to them. They get excited about it. Bang, it's on their menu. And wow, great endorsement. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, chefs are increasingly the tastemakers and we, we give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, something we might have been uh, squeamish about in, in our home kitchens where we're willing to take, it, take a shot. I guess one question I've had is, um, to date, really, your goal has been kind of verisimilitude, you know, as close as you can get it to the real thing. At what point um, is it improving, you know, both in, in terms of nutritional profile, um, even flavor, even kind of, I think that, you know, some people would say a beef perspective, there's that kind of minerally copper penny flavor that maybe some people find unappealing. I mean, at what point are you thinking um, there'll be a disconnect between the real thing and, and what your goals are, you know, in terms of uh, a flavor nutrition? Great, great, great question. Okay, so the first order of business is, so people know they love meat, okay? So if, and, and our goal is to compete against the incumbent. And I'll just say incidentally that, that about three quarters of our sales, we know from receipt data and so forth, directly displace the animal-based product, which is our goal. If it just was an additional thing in their basket, 
it's a complete waste of time for us. So that's good. But we felt like um, what we needed to do was intercept the consumer who was going to buy the animal-based product. That's kind of the goal here. And, and uh, the most kind of straightforward way to do that is to make a product that delivers exactly what consumers want from that product. But you're right about one thing, which is that we can make a product that is substantially better in ways that matter to the consumers that, that, than the cow-derived product. Well, right out of the box, our product had no cholesterol. Um, it doesn't get inoculated with fecal bacteria in the slaughterhouse, as every single pound of ground beef in the US does. Um, it, uh, we can make it lower calorie, lower fat, um, and those things um, because we control the knobs. But the flavor, that's another thing. It's, think of it this way. In order to get something made from plants to um, be for a large majority of people who try it indistinguishable or they will identify it immediately as, as uh, meat from an animal, we had to navigate this space of possibilities in terms of flavor and aroma and so forth to get from point A to that point where it's recognized as you know, uh, um, cow muscle, basically. Well, in the course of navigating that space, we've learned a lot about, about places we can go that are not exactly right there. And there's essentially zero doubt, and in fact, we've done some experiments that, that kind of prove this, that, that we can make something that actually is generally preferred by consumers to, to the cow version. And I think that by next year, I think our mainstream product will actually, if we do a side-by-side -side comparison with nothing but meat eaters, will be preferred by a majority of them. And that, like I say, that's already true for a pretty large fraction. So yes, you hit a really good point. It's not enough for us to be just as good. We have to be more delicious, better nutritionally, and more affordable to guarantee our success, and we will. Great. So I want to go back to talking a little bit about the planet. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot to, um, you know, companies like Nyman Ranch or people who are trying to, you know, do animal agriculture in a non-CAFO setting. Um, and there's a lot of talk about how ruminants are these magical beings that sequester carbon in a unique way and use lands that are, that are not arable for traditional agriculture, et cetera. And I want to talk a little bit about that premise and how it's, your approach in terms of conventional soy, um, how that fits into that. Okay, well, there are so, so many elements of, of that and so many misconceptions that get, get, that get uh, promulgated. First of all, ruminants are great, okay? Uh, there's lots of wild ruminants on the planet. Uh, mostly the people who are raising cows for food just look at Point Reyes. They, they, they ask the government to kill all those elk that are eating the grass that, that was meant for their cows. So ruminants are great. They're, they're an important part of a healthy ecosystem. But right now, the total population of cows on Earth is they've virtually completely replaced nature, OK? The total biomass of cows on Earth right now is more than 10 times the combined biomass of every wild mammal, bird, reptile, and amphibian, OK? So yes, we need ruminants. We don't need to cover the entire freaking planet with cows. Um, secondly, there's, there's all this. Um, uh, uh, talk about, oh, regenerative grazing and so forth. And give me a break. I mean, you, you, you think we're going to be better off burning down the Amazon and covering it with cows, and, we're going to, and that's actually going to do a better job of capturing carbon? It's utter nonsense. And there's, there's tons of data on this. And one thing I'll say about 
about uh, from from the standpoint of climate. There's so much more to talk about here, but from the standpoint of climate changes, um, when we have completely replaced animals as a food technology with our technology with the environmental data we have right now, okay. First of all, the land footprint of humanity will be reduced by more than 80 percent, okay, but more than fivefold because such a vast fraction of the land footprint of humanity is animal agriculture will vastly reduce our land footprint. Secondly, um, as a result, we will be able to reverse this catastrophic collapse in global biodiversity. Less than a third as many wild mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish living on Earth today as there were just 50 years ago, almost entirely due to our use of animals. Uh, in the food system. But there's another magical thing that we can do, which is we can literally turn back the clock on climate change. And you can do the math. You can calculate the total amount of biomass that exists on the land we're using right now to raise cows that was turned into land to raise cows, just like as we're doing in the Amazon right now. The amount of carbon in that biomass is equivalent to more than 16 years worth of of uh, annual greenhouse gas emissions. So simply if I snap my fingers, the recovery of that biomass by itself would effectively turn back the clock by 16 years. The other thing is that 44% according to the IPCC of methane in the atmosphere comes from, uh, from cows. Now, methane has a half-life of nine years. So if you stop emitting it, if you took the livestock component of methane emissions out, the decay of that methane with a half-life of nine years would actually, over 20 years, um, pull out the equivalent of 12 years' worth of current greenhouse gas emissions. So if you look at all the factors, if I could snap my fingers and make that industry go away right now, in 2040, the, green, the total atmosphere of greenhouse gases would be what they were in 2013, literally turning back the clock on climate change, something nobody even talks about is completely possible. So this regenerative agriculture thing is utter nonsense. It's propaganda. There is no science behind it. Um, and besides which, it defies common sense. Like, yeah, we'll be much better off if we just burn down forests and destroy healthy ecosystems and cover the planet with cows. It's just absurd, okay? On the face of it, it's absurd. Why they, why they can actually get people to buy that utter unscientific propaganda just baffles me. Well, Dr. Brown, I, I feel like we, there are about 20 questions that have just come into my mind, but unfortunately our time is up and uh, it's been just a thrill to, to have this opportunity with you today. Hey, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And sorry for my rants, but I can't help myself because I care about this stuff. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more about these topics firsthand, or you want to let us know what you want to hear, be sure to check us out on any of our social media accounts or visit websummit.com. That's websummit.com.